and that theme tune can mean only one thing it's the reading room podcast uh, we just come out of the second program and uh, we've come to record this trail how did it go johnny what do you think it was a little bit fraught wasn't it i think we got a little bit lazy to be honest and we, we <laughs> thought we were better than we were after the triumph and it has to be said of last month i think yeah we uh, we, we rested on our laurels somewhat however this is not to uh, peruse your, your listening pleasure of the uh, of, of the podcast uh, it's just our frantic uh, our franticness between uh, between songs and whatnot uh, however we did sort it out we pulled it out of the bag as i hope you'll hear on this now um that theme tune i like i do like our theme tune we just played there johnny i'm thinking do you remember when uh anita dobson did uh, some words along to their theme tune to the east anyone can fall in love anyone can yep. fall in love. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about writing some words along to that at some point um no doubt that'll be very late at night um okay so here it is this is the uh, the, the podcast and we'll be along at the end uh, to talk uh, about what's coming up next month Enjoy! Hi, this is Katie Price and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. And now there's nothing better than the feel and the smell of a brand new book, but there are some who believe that the traditional paper and ink book is on its way out. E-books and e-readers are slowly rising in popularity, with companies such as Apple, Amazon and Google vying for dominance in this new market. But will it really spell the end for the traditional book? Uh, now, Johnny, uh, you've been looking at the world of uh, electronic books. Now, for the uninitiated, what exactly are e-books? Okay, well, uh, e-books are essentially electronic versions of books that you can download from the internet in exactly the same way that people might be more familiar with um, downloading music. And it's, it's exactly the same principle. And in fact, e-books have been around a lot longer than music downloads. They're, unbelievably, they've been around since the 1970s in various really? forms. Crikey. But it's only really with the advent of portable uh, e-readers that they've started to take off, they've started to become a kind of practical proposition. And e-readers are simply little handheld battery-operated devices with a big screen on the front, usually with a, a slightly odd name like the, the Nook or the Kindle. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know where they get these names. <laughs> no, 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 but I'm sure there's a lot of people working uh, around the clock at those, they, you know, but they seem like three-in-the-morning decisions, though, don't they? <laughs> they do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but essentially, they're iPods for books, and many people believe that, um, for better or worse, e-books and e-readers are going to do for books the same as MP3s and iPods have done for music. Excellent. Uh, now, what are the advantages of e-books over a regular book? Well, um, with, with most e-readers, you can do fancy things like downloading stuff wirelessly from anywhere in the world or um, you know, clicking on words and getting an instant dictionary definition, which you know, could be quite handy if you're reading something a bit highbrow. Um, but really, the, the big um, advantage of them is portability. And we're talking on the show today about holiday reading. I think there was, there was an email earlier from Sue in Lincoln yeah, who said that she takes, what, six to eight books on oh. holiday. <laughs> but, I mean, they must fill a suitcase on their own. I'll pay the, uh, I bet they pay the extra baggage there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're better off spending the money on an e-reader, I think, because with one of those, you can carry potentially thousands of books around with you. For example, the latest fourth-generation uh, Kindles from Amazon can hold up to 3,500 books on a, a little unit about the size and weight of a, a single uh, slim paperback really so with e-readers you can literally carry your entire library around with you everywhere you go yeah yeah i know uh, someone who popped into work uh, who has an e-reader and he was saying that uh, uh, it came with 10 free books and these were these were old classic books that uh, yeah, I think, copyright you know, yeah, free, yeah yeah copyright free exactly but he said uh, actually uh, he has read them I, I didn't think he would do but he did say uh, <laughs> that he, he would read them uh, and he did he did do and he, he really enjoyed it so i mean, I, I don't know you know <laughs> there's something there but what costs are involved in this um well until very recently e-readers have been pretty expensive but uh, actually just in the last month or so 
they've really started to come down. Um, as I said, Amazon have launched their fourth generation Kindles, and they now start at just £109. Right. Um, and Barnes and & Noble and Sony, probably in response to that, have um, reduced the cost of their e-readers as well. Yeah. So that's really coming down. But um, when it comes to the actual e-books themselves, the pricing's a bit confusing here because you would expect that they ought to be cheaper. You know, after all, you've not got the cost of paper and printing and, and distribution. And occasionally they are, but it's not always the case. For example, right now on um, on Waterstone's website, if you wanted to buy Dan Brown's The Lost Symbols an e-book, it would cost you £5.71. Whereas on exactly the same website, the uh, the paperback version is only three seventy nine. Right. So you're paying fifty percent more for an ebook for the convenience. Yeah. Well, I guess so. But I mean, really, the reason behind this is uh, it's down to publishers who seem incapable of agreeing on a, a pricing level for ebooks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe um, maybe sorry, like the uh, the record industry, they all need to get together and sort this out. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is an echo of what happened with you know iTunes about seven or eight years ago. Yeah. And, and also, there's a lot of argument about what share of royalties authors ought to get, that kind of thing. And so, when you add to that the fact that ebooks, unlike regular books, do attract VAT, you can see why they're more expensive. Oh, I see. But I, I think, personally, I think that's really going to hold back the popularity of ebooks. I think people generally expect digital versions of things to be a bit cheaper, at least. Yeah, and certainly, like with the, uh, the, the music industry, where obviously there's a problem with, uh, with copywriting, those copyright problems are going to exist uh, with, with, with ebooks too, as well, aren't Absolutely, they? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, just how popular. Are ebooks well not as popular as expected. As, as I say, ebooks have been around a very long time, and way back in the year 2000, there was a, one very widely quoted uh, industry study that claimed that by 2005, ebooks would account for 10% of total book sales. Right. Now uh, here we are in 2010, and certainly here in the UK, the figures more like about 3%. Now there, there are various reasons for this. There have been issues with availability. Um, for example, Amazon, which is the, the biggest bookseller, yeah. um, until this month have not been selling ebooks in directly in the UK. You've had to go to their American site to buy them I see. in dollars. So that's been holding things back a little. But as I say, 27th of August this month, that's they're launching their UK Kindle site, so that's going to push things forward a bit. But also two other things have happened recently that have really pushed e-books forward. The first is the, um, the launch of Apple's iPad, which has been an absolute sensation. Now, it's worth saying that the iPad is more than just an e-reader. You can browse the internet on it, you can do word processing, that kind of stuff. But its size and its design do make it absolutely ideal as an e-reader. And it's certainly something that Apple feels a, a key part of the package. They've um, set up their own online e-book store called uh, the iBook Store, which run alongside their, their massively profitable iTunes store. And, you know, clearly they're hoping that it'll be yeah. just as profitable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they've made a couple of pounds out of that, they? Yeah, they have, absolutely. And uh, the iPad itself is, is selling at the rate of a million units a month. Um, so that's an enormous number of new e-book users out there. So the, the market's grown massively. Um, so so that's the first thing. The second thing is the, the announcement by uh, Google of their intention to get into the e-book business. Sometime in the next couple of months, they're going to be launching their Google Editions website, which they claim will have around 4 million books on offer. And that's, that's a, a huge amount more than any other site. It's about 10 times what Amazon have got at the moment. Yeah. And the other important thing about the Google site is that it's not going to be linked to any particular um, device. So while Apple and Amazon have tried to lock in users to their site with their devices, the Google site is going to be a free-for-all. The, the e-books they sell will be compatible with, with all makes of e readers. Right. So that's going to introduce some, some real competition into the industry. Oh, I see. And uh, obviously this is going to have some kind of impact on the uh, the high street bookshops. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I have to say this is where my reservations begin a little. I mean, I, I like nothing more than mooching around bookshops for hours on end. Yeah, me too. And um, it is hard to see quite how traditional bookshops are going to fit in you know, if e-books do take off. And indeed, a, a survey by the, the Bookseller magazine showed that 88% of uh, book trade professionals thought the bookshops will lose out to digital sales. Really? Yeah, I was in uh, I was in a high street bookshop recently, and uh, they, they had a little uh, section uh, for, for e-readers and whatever, yeah. and there was a, a father talking to his daughter saying, look, this is the future. The, the, you know, and he, and he was going as far and saying that 
bookshops won't exist. This is what you're going to look at. Now, I'm not convinced about that, but uh, uh, really, I suppose there'll be a big market in, the, in in second-hand bookshops. There's something about the smell, isn't there? There is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people think it can't happen, but you've only got to look at the uh, the music industry, you know, the way that record shops have pretty much disappeared from a high street. So the same could happen with bookshops. Yeah. But as you say, there is just something about the feel of a book in your hands, isn't there? You yeah. know, the, the joy of lending a, a doggy a copy of a, a favourite book to a friend, or the sense of satisfaction of, of putting a book upon your bookshelf when you read it you, you can't do those things with ebooks yeah. so i think we are we are losing something but the industry is is broadly enthusiastic about ebooks many believe that the format's now reaching a tipping point where it's finally about to break into the mainstream and um, indeed just recently the author james patterson became the first author to sell over one million ebooks and just this week amazon.com announced that they're now selling more ebooks than hardbacks on uh, on new releases right so that's that's really quite a landmark and i think it's going to be interesting to see whether you know the public are finally ready to embrace ebooks yeah. in the way that the industry you know, clearly hopes they're going to. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time for the Reading Room tea break. Uh, last month we had an interview with the Lincoln Phoenix Writers Circle and they talked about the release of their 10-year anniversary anthology, Phoenix Rising. And we also played a short story by one of their members. This month, another of their members, Keith Blakesley, has uh, written and read a piece for us. This is Memory of Life. Memory of Life. The rain was incessant the noise of it thundering on the roof of the caravan, its volume ebbing and flowing in time with the gusts of wind that hailed up in from the sea. David McAllister stepped back from the front window, the driving rain obliterating any view up the valley. He felt sad, alone and isolated, and he missed his wife Rachel so much. He still bitterly regretted his decision to buy into the mobile home. It had sounded romantic at the time, something he and Rachel could look forward to, a second home in a cove on the South Devon coast, away from the grime of London. But all that had changed. It had been three years ago that he'd arrived in the small hours, tired after the long journey, with David carrying a bottle of their favourite red burgundy to celebrate their new acquisition. The odd thing was that he'd felt sure he'd smelt a faint, pungent aroma of gas. He still remembered promising himself to get it checked first thing the following morning. David had only just popped a cork when the lights had suddenly gone out. Rachel had shrieked in surprise at the sudden loss of light. Just then the heavens had opened, throwing great sheets of rain down, drowning out any attempt by David to try and console Rachel as he fumbled around the room, feeling for the light switch. It seemed so surreal now, but at the time David was sure Rachel was shouting something, a warning, but he couldn't make it out. Just as he got to the switch and in a sudden short lull in wind and rain he heard Rachel say something about gas. But it was too late. The next thing he remembered was the flash that lit Rachel's face and burned her image onto the back of his retina, heat and an enormous feeling of uplift as he was thrust forcibly upwards and outwards. Strangely enough, he'd felt no fear, no panic. Then he'd regained consciousness. He quickly surveyed the caravan, or what was left of it, The only things David could remember clearly, though, were the remains of the oven door blown out, glass all around and what looked like the contents of the wine bottle, oozing red, blood-like liquid across the carpet. His mind still refused to accept that it had been Rachel. David spent months in St Hugh's Hospital, and over a year haunted by a myriad of images of Rachel screaming at him, fear in her eyes and death all around her, images so vivid and intense he felt they were real. He'd put the events down to an overactive imagination and drink. 
he had since given up both. Eventually, he could take it no more and wanted to come back to this place, if only for Rachel's sake, to try and lay her memory and spirit to rest. It was getting dark, the shadows in the caravan room, the insurance replacement, beginning to elongate away from the single lamppost across the other side of the mud-spattered road. He felt chilled and wondered what had possessed him to return. David was very meticulous, both in his demeanour and lifestyle. He went to the cupboard near the sink and took out two candles and a couple of saucers and then placed them on the table. He quickly extracted a box of matches from the right-hand sink drawer and lit both of the candles, melting wax onto the saucers to fix them in place. He looked at his watch. Soon. The lights had gone out that first year, not just in the caravan, but also in his life. He didn't believe in fate or luck and wasn't religious in any way. So why did the lights keep going out? Why did he experience the things he did? David scarcely believed it actually happened. Why had he come back? David licked his lips and sat down at the table to wait, the flickering light now unable to penetrate the shadow at the kitchen end of the caravan. The sweat began to grow under his collar as he realised the rain and wind had ceased, as if suddenly switched off. The silence was unnatural. David had a strange feeling of expectation. He peered intently into the darkness, waiting. In the utter blackness, in the periphery of his vision, he sensed, rather than saw, an outward momentum, as if the blackness was being drawn out from the centre of his vision. No, it was as if he were moving towards it, yet never moving. His vision muddied briefly and then parted, revealing a pool of light. With light reflecting on David's face, he saw an apparition of such beauty and yet such terror glide across the room towards him. It was Rachel. He stood and approached her, tears running down his face. Rachel, he cried. The vision of Rachel looked up at him, eyes wide, the same look of fear he'd seen the night she'd died. She seemed to scream out, but no sound came, only silence. David began to cry, an anguish of such utter despair. Oh, Rachel, he wanted her, desperately. Suddenly, the image of Rachel began to withdraw, revealing a wider view for David of his living room in London. She stared straight at him, and for one brief second David thought she could actually see him. Just then, another shape began to form. David stared transfixed as the shape elongated into a black entity, a phantom of frightening proportions, a great white expanse of pure bright light spread across its middle. As the spirit took on further definition, two appendages began to form into arms, arms into hands. It was a male. His dark features in stark contrast to the band of light around his neck. David tried to back away, but the table behind him blocked his exit. He then became aware for the first time of a low, audible droning emanating from the apparition. The sounds were magical, mystical, inviting. David was so plagued by it that it took all his will to remain calm. He tried to look past the figure to see his wife. Rachel, don't leave me! But she was receding out of sight. The spectre pushed past through the final veil of David's vision, quickly moving towards him, crossing the divide of the image of David's house and the caravan, carrying a large Bible and cross. The sounds 
Words from the spectre took on an urgent tone, rising in pitch and intensity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I exercise your spirit to eternal peace. Be gone! David stared in shock as full realization dawned on him. He felt his entire being, his very soul, draining from him, his skin losing all sense. Exactly as it had happened on the night of the explosion, he was blasted skywards, bursting through the roof of the caravan higher and higher. As he flew up, his body twisting and turning, he saw his caravan and his cove, his South Devon coast all vanishing far below him. As tears wept from his eyes, he saw, far out over the sea, his beloved Rachel weeping into the shoulder of the priest. The final thing he saw was Rachel picking up an urn that stood in front of her. David lifted his eyes and looked up. He saw the white intensity of such peaceful proportions that he finally succumbed to his fate. His spirit vanished into the light. Epilogue The priest lowered himself into a chair, beads of sweat running down his face, totally exhausted. Rachel came over and knelt before him. He placed his heavy hand upon her head, and she wept. The priest's gravelly voice whispered, "'What will you do now, my child, now that he's gone?' Rachel looked down at the urn held in her hands. He always said that if anything ever happened to him, he'd want his ashes spread over his favourite place. But I've never plucked up the courage to go back. I suppose now I've no choice. I have to go. I'll have to carry out his last wish, but I don't want to. I'll come with you, if you would help. Where is it you need to go? Devon. stuff thank you very much and welcome to the reading room book group um, we're set up just like any other reading group although there's no wine in the studio this morning however if you'd like to come along and be part of the review panel here in the studio or you'd like a copy of the book to review via email then we'd love to hear from you uh, you can email us at readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk now this morning's reviewers are deborah wilson principal lecturer of broadcast journalism at the university of lincoln and joining us again is melanie carroll from unicorn tree books and crafts in lincoln good morning and welcome to the both of you good Morning. Morning. Now, this month, we, uh, we read Narrow Dog to Carcassonne by Terry Darlington. When they retired, Terry and Monica Darlington decided to sail their narrow boat across the channel and down to the Mediterranean, together with their whippet, Jim. They took advice from experts who said they would die, together with their whippet, Jim. Now, the cover is a, a cartoon-style narrow boat with uh, a whippet on the front, and the tagline on the back reads, uh, We could bore ourselves to death, drink ourselves to death, or have a bit of an adventure. Now, Melanie, I know you like the uh, the blue type on the pages, but did you like what was written on them? I I have to say, I persevered through to the end of this book. That's not to say it's a bad book, because it, it's actually not. There's a lot of fun in the book, um, and look, but, but it's one of those books where, to be honest, I wish I'd just been able... If, if I hadn't been reading it for here, I wouldn't have made it through to the end. I would have given up. It's great to pick up and flick through because every time you flick it open, there is actually something interesting happening. But having to read it all the way through, it's it's very much a stream of consciousness book. And believe me, it's bad enough being in my own head without <laughs> being in his head as well. Um, and I think that would 
for me, sum it up. It did seem like a, a group of thoughts put together on the page now. Uh, Deborah, <laughs> what, what did you make of it? Well, you see, that kind of thing just suits me absolutely fine. I mean, I, I absolutely loved this book for, for various reasons. Although I do have to admit, I haven't actually finished it all. I wanted to make sure I checked the ending, and I've read two-thirds of it. I see. But because I was travelling through France myself, and I'm not good at reading in the car, uh, and only got back sort of a few hours before coming to this program. I haven't finished it, but I have to say I do want to. Um, the thing is, I've got as far as France in the book, and I've read about his, arri you know, his arrival uh, as to where he got to. But the thing you see that this, you couldn't have given me a more perfect book to read, <laughs> and I have to hang on to it, and I have to get, I have to finish it. Um, first of all, it starts off in the Stoke region. He comes from Stone. Yeah, I used to work at BBC Radio Stoke. I know the area well. I loved Stone, so that started me off. I used to live on a narrowboat for a short while. Really? And funnily enough, on the Trent and Mersey Canal, <laughs> midway between Derby and Stoke. So I could, I could immediately relate to the trials and tribulations of living on a long, thin boat. Um, I was actually on a journey going through France when I was reading it, in the opposite direction to the way he was going. But um, I could understand his, his need to get to Carcassonne, which is a beautiful place. Um, it was everything that I would have loved uh, and that I do love in a holiday read, particularly if in the right place at the right time. I love his humour. I'm very big in, on uh, observational humour. I love Bill Bryce and that kind of thing. And I really liked the way that he did this. So I could go with a stream of consciousness, but that, maybe that was because it's, A, it's the, exactly the kind of stuff I like to read, and B, it was exactly at the right time when I was doing something kind of similar. Yeah and could relate to some of the things that he was talking about. Yeah, I see. I mean, I, straight away, I struggled with the lack of punctuation. For example, no speech marks. Now, last <laughs> month last month we covered uh, Lynn Trust, didn't we? Uh, and uh, and I, I think she'd have, uh, I don't know, she might have exploded if she'd seen this book. I'm sure, you know, if she's read it or not. Uh, that really, I really struggled, and it took me around about 50 pages to get into the flow. Well, I, I know about, I, it was the first time I've ever seen this lack of quotation marks. I mean, in in, um, in the copy of the book I've got, I don't know if it's the same in your copy, it, but there's an interview with him, yeah. and he talks about this lack of quotation marks and this stylistic device that he's adopted. Now, he says he's not the first person to use it. It was the first time I'd seen it. But he quotes, I think it's uh, Susan Stone's Tags, The Volcano Lover, uh, which I haven't read. No, I haven't read it lately. Um, <laughs> so I've not seen it. And also, he also says that he, um, he, he, he's, he had as his inspiration somebody called Terry Coleman, who writes as a, or was writing as a special correspondent in The Guardian. Again, not somebody I've read. So it was the first time I'd ever seen that. I found his use of putting a capital letter at the beginning of the actual speech helped me. I see. Um, but I am, I am a punctuation pedant. Um, I, 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 as, a, as a lecturer here, uh, I, even if they're writing radio copy, I'll insist that the students have their punctuation absolutely bang on but I saw that as a stylistic advice so I was quite happy with it and I could go with it and it didn't actually cause me any problems so I think it goes with the blue ink it's that whole Are kind you, of it is, I'm sorry you love that blue ink I did I absolutely I mean the blue ink actually is the first clue that this book is not going to be anything that you expect it to be because it's not often you open a book with blue ink I think um, Never Ending Story I think is, the, is, is one of the other books that I've ever picked up where the inks were different colours to the normal and it, and it, it does add something to it it immediately tells you it, it leaves you a little off centre 
immediately. Um, and I think his punctuation is very much like that. But I tell you what reminds me of, it's all of those stories I wrote when I was eight, nine and ten. <laughs> and I said, and she said, and he said, and we said. And it's all of that. There's no, you know, it's before you learn to, to put your stories in proper sentences and to do that. And, and that's how it reads. So it's very much, like I say, it is that stream of consciousness. It's almost like he's carrying on the conversation with himself and I just happen to be there. Yeah, yeah. It's been described uh, by one reviewer as like drinking scotch, not immediately enjoyable, but for those prepared to invest time, it will reap great rewards. <laughs> uh, now, let's try and give you, uh, uh, the listeners, uh, an excerpt from this, but we've got uh, one minute uh, that I've just uh, I've pre-recorded, so this will give you a, a clue as to what we're talking about. As we settled by the river, Jim began to snicker, and we looked around. A chap nearby had put a basket on his table and was taking out a chicken. He stood the chicken on the table, and he and his lady chatted with it as it stalked about and crowed, and they all shared a packet of crisps. I'm so glad we had this walk, Monica said. The weather picked up, you like the beer, and there was a chicken. The next morning we went to the pensioners' matinee at the Odeon. The grey ones were creeping in from all over the city like lichens across a damp floor. There was a long queue. Don't worry, said Monica. Some of them will have died before we reach the ticket office. I expect the ticket lady to say, Sorry, sir, you can't possibly be that old. But she was a trusting soul and let us in. For two pounds each, we got a free cup of coffee and a chocolate-flavoured biscuit as a further gift from a grateful nation. The film was about the writer, Iris Murdoch, growing old and going mad and dying in Oxford. This happened very slowly. The audience took it well, considering. There was a choking and a commotion near the end, and I guess someone didn't make it. But most of us pulled through. Now, Deborah, you were chuckling all the way through that. <laughs> I was doing this when I was reading the book. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I was reading a section of it on the Cross Channel ferry coming over from Cherbourg. And, um, and I was laughing out loud, causing some consternation amongst uh, fellow passengers. Uh, this did have me chuckling most of the way through. OK, so uh, while that was playing, you were saying about the way he does French. What's... Well, it's, it's clear that not only, and there's two things that's, that are really clear. One is that he was an English literature student, you can tell, because it's, it's throughout there are references, particularly to poetry, mm. which some of which I got with my O-level English, uh, most of which I didn't, but he has a very helpful reference guide at the back. And it doesn't really spoil the enjoyment if you miss the quotes. But the, um, the other thing is he quite clearly can speak French quite well, yeah. because he writes the French, when he's doing his French conversation, in the French, in the, in where he's got the dialogue in French, during the book he does it in English but he phrases it in the French way you know a bit back to front and he gives a very helpful guide as well on French in 15 minutes at the end of the book as one of the appendices it's on page 399 in my copy I don't know if it's the same in yours and he goes through the simple rules of how to speak French um, and he says you know the simple rule is English works the other way round um, the Englishman has been brought up to feel remorse at being born and causing inconvenience to others, while the Frenchman sees no reason to apologise. And he sums up the sort of the French, the French nature and the French language beautifully yeah. all the way through this, and and then sort of sums it up in this lesson in French in fifteen minutes. Now, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember Franglais? No. Right. Uh, I think it was Miles Miles Kingston. Um, forgive me if I've got that wrong, but he used to do these books on Franglais, which were half French and half English, which were very very funny. Uh, and it started off as a column in a paper, and they were hugely entertaining. You had to have a little knowledge of French probably to get it, but I think even with just sort of a fairly basic knowledge of French, you could find that the you know you could you could see the funny side in it. Um, and and he's sort of taken this a step further in that he's doing French but in English. I see. 
<laughs> You're saying that in a way that you don't. Yeah, I, I, I'm nodding my head and shaking my head at the same time. Do you know what I mean, though? It's sort of back to front, inside out, in that sort of... When you take, when French isn't just about changing the languages into French vocabulary. It's the way that they switch things around. Yeah. You know, it's not my aunt's pen is in the garden. It's the pen of my aunt is in the garden. Yeah. That sort of thing. It's, it's all a bit sort of peculiar. Um, and back to front, and it's it, which is fine because that's the way that, that their language is formed. But this is the way he does it. I find very entertaining. But maybe you need to have a knowledge of French to get that. Yeah. Did your French improve, Melanie? Uh, as my French is very bad, and all I know in French is, uh... <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nothing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Blank there, which is really bad because I actually have a best friend who is French, but we never we speak in English all the while. Um, I, I have to be honest. I. I I didn't get that. I'm, I'm not. I don't speak French even well enough to. You know, I can ask for an ice cream when I go to France. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I come from the school of uh, shouting loudly in English, <laughs> English. and uh, until you break yeah. through. Now, I think. Uh, now, I think we've uh, we've established that I I struggled with it. I think the editor took a holiday. Uh, while this was while this was going on, but it wasn't without its charm. Um, the frustrations of getting older, I think, were, were dealt with really well. Um, they, they were going through so many locks, uh, the, uh, you know, with, with the boat that uh, you know the, the the frustrations that they had in this. Uh, now we've had an email uh, from Kathy. Uh, good morning, Kathy, uh, who is part of our reading group email panel. When I start a book, I usually make a real effort to read it, especially for a book club. But I was beaten by this book. I only managed halfway, and that was a struggle. I knew when the housework was looking interesting that it was time to admit <laughs> defeat. I found the author's sense of humour really irritating after a while, and lost the plot as I got bogged down with his wit. Getting as much wit in as possible seemed more important than the actual purpose of the narrative. I would recommend this book if you have a great interest in whippets, but feel you may be a tad disappointed if you are interested in narrowboats. Thanks very much, Cathy, for that. Now, I, I took a walk down to Brayford uh, with this. I was uh, hoping to uh, do some Vox Pops and some talks with, uh, with with anyone who'd read it. I spoke to three or four people. No one had read it, I thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I think maybe a few more people now might be reading it from this. But I love the travel genre. Pete McCarthy's books. Have, uh, have either of you read any of those? I haven't. Right. I can't recommend them heartily enough, especially, Deborah, if you like this. Pete McCarthy's books, who's sadly no longer with us, McCarthy's Bar and The Road to McCarthy. Again, uh, when we thought about the holiday reading we're doing for for this month, uh, we, I, I really thought about how I liked, when I go away, I like to be put in the position uh, of someone observing the place around them. Mm. And that's what Pete McCarthy does wonderfully. And you certainly felt that with uh, with, with this book, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, and Bill Bryson, of course. Yeah. I mean, Notes yeah. from a Small Island. Uh, some of that will make you laugh out loud. I, I love because um, I lived for a long while in the cent in central southern England in the Bournemouth sort of Christchurch pool area and working at BBC South. And uh, the period in Bill Bryson's book Notes from Small Island, where he's working at the Bournemouth Echo, is fabulous and very very funny. Uh, there's a, an issue over windows, opening <laughs> them, closing them. Um, but uh, it's that sort of thing. And as you say, if you locate it to places that you 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 know. And place you can you can get double the amount of enjoyment out of it, can, can't you? Yes. Yeah, so is this the kind of genre you'd normally read, Melanie? To be honest, it's not. Um, I'm I'm not a great. I mean, in terms of the humour, unlike um, Kathy, I think it was. I I actually enjoyed his wit, and I do very much did enjoy the humour that's in there. And I like humorous books, but I must admit, I'm not really one for the travel genre because I haven't really travelled very far, I so see. I don't have the connections to make with those sort of things. If it was anywhere in England or Scotland and Wales, it would be fine. But when we start going abroad, I don't really do that. So a lot of it 
sort of flows past me. Although the idea of living on the narrow boat was very appealing, but perhaps without the whippet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you've, they've given you an insight now as to as to what that would be, and you still you still want to do it. You still want to get, <laughs> get trapped in the engine room. No, I don't want to get trapped in the <laughs> engine room. <laughs> but but I quite like it. for a two week holiday. Yeah, fine. Um, sailing all the way to France or living on it permanently. Probably I'm not quite as finding that as appealing as I used to. And how, um, how long did you live on a, a narrowboat for? Well, I'm, a fair, I'm a f- afraid I'm a fair-weather boater. I <laughs> lived on the narrowboat for the summer, sort of from about May through to October. I don't know I could have handled the winter, the winter uh, season. He does mention there's a section in the book where he talks about uh, the wonderful sound of the ice breaking on his narrowboat hull and the, the frostiness of the surrounding countryside and, and the crispness of the air. That doesn't do anything for me. I'm a warm-weather person. I don't like being cold. I have been on a narrowboat... Uh, during the winter and it's great if you're inside and you can get the solid fuel burner going and you're sort of all toasty and you're drinking lots of hot drinks but getting wrapped up and going up on top and steering the thing through the ice wouldn't interest me at all no <laughs> no no <laughs> nor me but i did uh, th- th- those descriptions i mean they to say, I wouldn't say I really dislike this. I just wish it was uh, welded together a little bit better, really. I, I, he introduced new characters as if you should know who they are. Robin, I remember, being one of them. And I thought, I, I don't know this person. He's not introduced me. And the, the, actually, it started without an introduction. And I felt then that, you know, I think once he got to France, I think I'd got the flowing style um, almost, almost now. But I still found it a struggle. There was a sort of an impressionistic quality about it, wasn't there? Yeah. As you say, that, you know, sometimes things would just sort of pop in and pop back out again and he'd start off in places and then the next paragraph would be somewhere completely different. But maybe, again, because I was on holiday when I was reading this, I could let that kind of flow. Yeah. And I was quite happy to go with it. Um, because it didn't irritate me at all. Although I'm not sure, is it impressionist or are we in the surrealist genre? (laughs) (laughs) Borderline. (laughs) There was a a great thing in John Peel's semi-autobiography, wasn't it, because it was half written by his uh, his, his wife Sheila, and they were saying that uh, John, to explain surrealism, uh, nailed a shoe (laughs) to the ceiling, (laughs) to to what he was explaining to one of his kids, he nailed a shoe to the ceiling, and that explains surrealism. (laughs) Okay, so I I I think we can recommend this, perhaps as a holiday read, I think, don't you, Deborah? Holiday read helps if you like the Bill Bryce and observational humour. Yeah. Helps if you can get around the punctuation issues, and um, I think a little knowledge of fre- of basic French might help you get some of the French jokes too. Yeah, maybe you should have put the uh, the guide at the beginning of the book, uh, <laughs> ra- rather than, rather than at the end. Okay, uh, now next month's book is Forever Today by Deborah Waring. Uh, Clive Waring suffered extreme amnesia. For years, his wife, Deborah, supported him, but eventually broke away to live in America. When his memory started to return, she came back to England and to Clive. Now, if you'd like to review that book via email, email, then please get in touch with us, readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk. Now, later in the programme, we've got uh, my report on Katie Price. Now, I didn't see either of you two in the queue uh, for, for Katie Price, why why was that? I was in France. Ah, is that a you, good enough excuse? Because you'd have been there otherwise, would you? I'm. You will have missed it. <laughs> no, sorry. No, Melanie, um, it was just round the corner for you. It, it was, and we we saw lots and lots of people that had been queuing for a long while and were taking times out of the queue. But sorry, queuing for Katie Price, just not me. No. No. <laughs> I'm sure, she's a very nice lady, really. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a strange experience. I enjoyed the excitement of it. I was there to, I, I was there to cover it. I wouldn't have been there otherwise, I must confess. <laughs> um, but Johnny and I, we, we, you know, we, we talked about it before, uh, you know, and whether we should cover it because, you know, just because it's not suitable for us, of course it's suitable for Siren FM listeners. And, uh, I, I enjoyed the excitement of it. We had uh, one lady come up and tell me about a time she met, uh, Tom Jones and just started rambling on about, oh, I met Tom Jones. Oh, it reminds me of that. How exciting. And so there was a lot of excitement caused and we'll be talking about that. Uh, very soon. Now, thank you both very, very much. Melanie, you're going to stick around and talk to us uh, a bit more uh, later on in the programme. And Deborah, thank you for joining us. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for uh, inviting me. And you did say to me, would this book inspire you to re- read anything else by this author? And I know that there's a follow-up book to this, which I will I will get hold of and I will be reading as a result of reading this. So thank you for introducing me and to that's the in- Is it the in- Indiana River? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Of course, you know, there's a sad postscript to all of this in that... Um, their boat, the Phyllis May, went up in flames last November. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, uh, it burnt down completely. So there will be only this other book that was brought out what, a couple of years back. Uh, and uh, there will be no more about the, fi- the travels of the Phyllis May. So there will only be these two. Right. Yeah. Dog did it. It has to be said that the, the, the dog did. Uh, I think I think he suffered. I think I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out and say he suffered. Well, thank you very very much, both of you, and uh, we're going to leave that there. You're listening to the Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time to turn our eyes to Miss Price. Katie Price came to Lincoln this week, and uh, as we know, Melanie uh, d- didn't turn up. I turned up. Johnny, you were there as well, weren't you? I was, yeah. Now, we got into WH Smith. There were people queuing there from sort of 4.15 in the morning, and um, we I, f- I felt a little bad squeezing past her in the queue <laughs> because I've been to work and come out. Uh, and, we, and we squeezed through the barriers, didn't we? Uh, got through security. And uh, how did you feel? How did you feel just before, Johnny? Were you, were, you, were you excited? or I couldn't help but be excited, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a Katie Price fan in any way, shape or form. But when you're there and everyone else is so excited, and uh, when she did actually come into the room, there was a real palpable... <gasps> yeah, yeah, and yeah, even God. there were police officers there, you know, to keep order, and even they kind of rushed forward with yeah. their camera phones yeah, taking exactly. pictures. Exactly, exactly. Now... I thought she could have made more of an effort. I saw pictures of her in the paper earlier on in the week, and she was wearing a swimsuit, very big high heels, and not much else. And she brought along two hunks uh, with her in uh, like a Baywatch kind of thing. And she turned up in a tracksuit, for want of a better word. And uh, I I, I don't know. And also her model friend, Emma B, was there. And I thought it was her sister because they have a very similar uh, looking. But I think that might be something to do with surgery. Now, without further ado, let's play the report uh, that I created on Friday uh, from our visit and our interview with Katie. Walking down up to WH Smith now, the queue's, uh, queue's starting to get very excited. Uh, they've not been this excited now since the Look North camera crew uh, came around, and they're, they're, they're queuing right round to Sinsel Street. And I think it's fair to say it's a, it's a teenage girl audience here with the odd uh, boyfriend or, or brother dragged along. <laughs> you, can hear, you can hear people are chanting and getting real excited, although I know the manager's been out and said that there's going to be a bit of a delay. But we did just see uh, a Range Rover with. Uh, with a blacked out window, so uh, there's much, much excitement. Hi, Katie, pleased to be on uh, Paul from Siren FM in Lincoln. Uh, we do a reading programme, and uh, congratulations, it looks like it's going to go straight in at number one this Sunday. 
it was number one two days ago. Oh, right. <laughs> I see. Well, congratulations on that. That's all right. Thank Fantastic. you. <laughs> it looks like you've got a, a great crowd here. And uh, how's it gone over in Doncaster? Okay. It was absolutely amazing. There were so many people there, um, which is probably why I'm late to this one, because I make sure I sign everyone's books. Um, and some poor girl fainted in between, so then we had to wait. So, but anyway, we're here now, and hopefully it will go very smoothly. Now, in your press release we got, it says uh, there's certainly no secret that it's, uh, it's a ghost-written book. What's the relationship like between you and Rebecca, is it? Uh... Yeah, I come up with a plot with Rebecca, and then each chapter we sit through together, and she adds what she thinks will make it good. So we work together, and then she goes away and writes it up. Thanks very much for thanks, your time, Thanks, thanks very much. Hi, have you just been in to see Katie? Yeah. Yeah, how did it go? She didn't talk much. Wait, she, oh, did she, she, she not say anything much. to you? No, she just... She just how long have you been queuing up today? Uh, been here since about quarter past twelve. Right, okay. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was mainly a female crowd down there as I looked down earlier, so you, you're here by your own free will, are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, well, free will, not, not really too sure about that. <laughs> yeah, you got you know. dragged along. Yeah. yeah, it's great, you know, it's great. It's great what she does. You know, I think it's amazing that she's actually taking the time out to promote her book. And uh, yeah, she's got another autobiography coming out later in the year, hasn't she? October time, yeah, yeah. Well, if she's down here then, we're definitely going to be... How did you find that? She's amazing. She I know, so you been, have you been queuing for long? For about three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, but it was well worth it, yeah? Oh yeah, definitely. It says something, any and off he goes off to watch <laughs> off to watch Emmerdale after meeting Katie Price. That sounds like a good day out to me. And I think you can actually hear the excitement in my voice there. I was it. I was very very excited. I has to be said. The reading room on Siren 107.3 FM. Morning again, Melanie. Hi. Right, now then, uh, I'm pleased to say that you're back still with us, uh, and you're going to talk to us about three books looking mm. at the church and the relationship with social networking. Um, We've got Thy Kingdom Connected by Dwight Friesen, uh, The Church of Facebook by Jesse Rice, and Googling God uh, by John Cox. Now, Melanie, you obviously enjoyed these books. With one of them, enjoyed is not quite the right the right word. Um, I see. Because it, it was it was it was an exercise in intelligence. Having said that, it was a good read. It's a very intelligent book, very yeah. very science based book, which. Is, is great for exercising the mind. Whether it was an enjoyable read, that's another thing altogether. I see. Okay, so uh, if you want to uh, start by giving us your, your thoughts. Sure. As Paul's already said, during the last month I've been reading a few books that look at the idea of Facebook, how we relate, and faith. After all, I'm all about books and I'm all about social networking. And believe me, that's not quite as sad as some people really think it is. No, there I, is, I, I, is... I don't think so. I don't think that's... You know, oh, no. a lot of people... You're always on Twitter. You're always on Facebook. And it's like, yeah, they're great places, though, to communicate about books and um, pick up really good ideas. It's not doesn't always just have to be just surface yeah. chit chat. And we find we we find they're a great tool. And I, I, hate, I hate to use that word marketing tool, but you know they certainly are for this program. You know, and it makes a lot of people aware that we're here on a Sunday morning. Yes, yeah, and you know, check it out. I've, I've been linking to your to the Reading Room's Facebook page quite a lot over the last few days. Great so stuff, thanks for the mention. That's all right, you're more than welcome. Um, and it's not just because I'm on here, I would have mentioned it. <laughs> but the books that I've been looking at, is, is, it's because one of the titles, to be honest, one of the titles was on my shelf and caught my attention. And I thought, oh, got to look at that. All of these books, although they're all tied into the internet, the, I'm going to separate it into two different things. So Thy Kingdom Connected and The Church of Facebook, Yeah, both are... Um, about the social networking side of it. I'll deal with Googling God, 
yeah. right at the end because it, it's a little different to the other two. Um, in terms of, of Facebook, as I've already said, Facebook, Twitter, all of those social mediums, they are excellent networking um, communication tools that really can widen things. One of the things, I harp back to last month where um, we were looking at Lynn Truss's Eat, Shoots and Leaves, and yeah. towards the end of the book, she was quite negative about what the internet and texting and things like that were doing to this whole idea of reading and books yeah. and things. And I'd like to pick up on that because... Do you know the one thing that I've realised is actually Facebook and even Twitter and a lot of the social networking mediums are actually incredibly literate places to be. Okay, well, well, what makes you say that? Because there's a lot of people who disagree with that. Okay, Twitter, maybe 140 bursts. Okay, but in those 140 bursts, the, the sheer numbers of people out there that are using 140 characters to tell other people about really good books, to spread the ideas, the, the intellectualism of ideas. Okay, that's what books are about. Books are actually about, and, and literature and, and being literate is actually about spreading ideas. Yeah, and to that, they, they're, they're getting to the point as well, aren't they? Yeah, it exactly. stops them, stops them waffling on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 140 characters, this is worth looking at. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think in that respect, we, we need to acknowledge, and Facebook as well, it's like you said, you know, the reading room is on Facebook. Um, a lot of discussion, there's, you know, discussion panels in there. It isn't all just short bursts of, of surface nothing. There is actually a lot more to be said for social networking and things like that. And I, I I just wanted to pick that up because I think a lot of people miss that. And let's not forget, you've got to have some basic spelling and reading skills <laughs> to be using Facebook yeah. and Twitter anyway. Yeah, well, you certainly have my typing. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, so, so there is something to be said, I think, for the literacy and the, the you know... Um, literate value of Facebook and social networking. Moving back to the topic I'm meant to be dealing with, social networking has the potential and the ability to expand and grow our outlook, our outreach and the communities in which we interact. That's the theory. That's what I've just been speaking about in a way. Yeah. The reality is that does that work so well? You know, we've got all these communities, you know, we may be on Facebook, we may be on Twitter, we may have 978 Twitter followers um, or you know, 326 Facebook friends. You know, are these real communities? And this really is what Thy Kingdom Come and the Church of Facebook are actually dealing with. They're saying these are great and these are the places where we are choosing to be. But are these real communities? At the end of the day, do they have everything we need to fulfil our needs? Can community really work in a virtual world or is community actually something that is physically embodied? I see. I mean, Jesse Rice's The Church of Facebook, which I have to admit probably is, is my top pick. Yeah. It's published by David C. Cook, and, and Jesse Rice begins by addressing our need for connection with others. He goes on to look at why through Facebook and Twitter we, we get this connection, but what he asks is, in the end, do they actually fulfil our basic needs? It is important to say the man is a um, psychologist, so yeah. there is this element that comes through. Do they fulfil our basic needs? Despite the length of our contact lists, do we get the contact that we need? 
contact being a physical thing. Um, in the book, he gives a fantastic synopsis of the history and development of, of our socially networked society and how, it's, how it has grown from our needs and wants. But he also points out that it can be a place of shallow depth that in some ways, rather than satisfying, actually leaves us empty and needing more. For me, I think that's where the addiction... We talk a lot about Facebook addiction and Twitter addiction. Yeah. And I think that's that's the point of why we get addicted. Because as much as there is the contact, it leaves you that little bit empty and needing more. So you keep hooking in yeah. more and more. It's a bit like a little drug, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So critics would say that, that would, uh, human contact would be... Would would surpass that, yeah. that's right, yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the... If you talk about addictions, that's one of the reasons they say people get addicted is if growing up there hasn't been enough contact and things like that. Whether that's true or not, that bit I don't know. But mm. what I do find interesting is that we do sort of talk about Facebook addiction and internet addiction. And what Jess is saying is that's because although we're making those connections, we're missing the bigger picture. We're I missing see. real community, real contact. He does go on in it to say that Facebook is not a bad thing. Social networking is not a bad thing. But that what we need to be is a little bit more real. Yeah as it were, not just surface, actually include some depth in it. Okay, and you, want, you wanted to conclude this morning talking about uh, the, the Googling God book and John, John Cox, didn't you? I did, because the Googling God book is absolutely fantastic. It isn't dealing with the social networks, but what the Googling God book is actually dealing with is um, one man's search for God. So he started, as any modern person would, by Googling God. He <laughs> invented that. And, and seeing what came up. What's, what's really good about this book is um, this is written by a real person, someone that uses modern technology, that has lived in a couple of different continents. He's gone through all of the life dramas that we've all gone through. He's a divorced person. All of the things that quite often, you know, can really throw us off the rails. And he's incredibly honest about his experiences in it but the really good thing about this book is it reads as if you're google hopping i see and this is something to be said we're talking about social networking about the internet about how all these things to get tied together well in googling god what we see is a book that actually reads as if you were on the internet hopping from link to link Okay, so you get short bursts of his story, which are really well written and engaging. Then suddenly there's another hyperlink that we're going to jump to and we get a quote or whatever. Then back to the main thing. And it's just all the way through. It's just as if you were Google hopping, as if you were Googling God. But the thing he says is it's about experience. You know, we go from Googling something, from hopping to hopping to hopping, to having a real knowledge of something which we then take into our real lives and, and turn into something concrete and real. And that's why this book, this book is, is the perfect explanation of, of the other two. The other good thing with this book is, again, it's the antidote to Lynn Truss. This book demonstrates really well that books, the internet and faith can work together, can adapt to each other and can grow to the better of it. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Hi, me again. I hope you enjoyed that podcast uh, from Siren 107.3 and The Reading Room. And uh, next month, don't forget, we're uh, reviewing Forever Today by Deborah Waring. And you can contact us uh, via email at readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk with your thoughts on that book. And don't forget to tune in on Sunday, the 5th of September from 10 o'clock. Until then, goodbye.